Goddag og velkommen til langsomme samtaler om verdenssituationen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og jeg vil i dag præsentere en samtale, som jeg har glædet mig utrolig meget til. Vi har jo længe i Danmark været forbløffet, forbavset og indimellem begejstret over, at de er begyndt at tale om socialisme i Amerika. Det er en lidt omvendt verden, hvor socialismen ikke kommer fra Europa til USA, men derimod fra USA til Europa, hvor politikere som Bernie Sanders og Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez bliver inspirationer for den danske venstrefløj. Men jeg har også hele tiden tænkt, hvad er det egentlig, de mener amerikanerne, når de taler om socialisme? Hvad betyder socialisme egentlig for dem? For når det kommer til politik, så lyder det egentlig som det danske socialdemokrati. Og når det kommer til deres utopi, så minder det faktisk meget om det, Danmark er i dag. Well, good evening to our viewers here in Denmark, and uh, we're very glad that you're with us. And especially, it's not good evening to you, because you're in another time zone. But hello yeah. to you in the U.S. best car. Hi, how are you? Thanks, we're, thanks we're for, for doing this. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Så derfor har jeg valgt den, som jeg synes kunne være den allerbedste til at svare på netop det spørgsmål, og til at indføre os i amerikansk socialisme, hvor den står, hvad dens modstandere er, hvad dens kampe er, og hvad man skal kæmpe for, hvis man er socialist i Amerika. Det er Bashkar Sunkara, som er redaktør og grundlægger af Jacobin Mac, som er et amerikansk tidsskrift, og så er han forfatter til en bog, der hedder The Socialist Manifesto, der udkom i 2019. And thank you very much for taking your time on the last full day of the Trump presidency to talk to us. Yeah, yeah, it's a day of uh, of celebration for those on my side of the political spectrum. Um, but we'll see what kind of damage he could do in the next, uh, you know, 11 hours or so. Jeg talte med Bashkar dagen inden Joe Biden han blev indsat som præsident, og derfor kom meget af vores samtale til at forme sig over spørgsmålet om, hvordan skal Amerikas socialister forholde sig til Joe Bidens præsident, og er dette et stort fremskridt for socialismen, eller er det, der står tilbage, faktisk Bernies nederlag? God fornøjelse. Well, I first want to ask you about this attack on Capitol Hill, because when you mm-hmm. see it from abroad, my sensation is that Americans are overreacting a little bit. When when you see it, when you're not part of it, and when you're not, I understand it must be a horrifying event for those inside the Capitol building, and especially those that were in danger. And I understand that it must be horrible to to look at, and symbolically, it's a Mm-hmm. It's a horrendous event, but I'm, I'm a little surprised by the reaction. People mm-hmm. referring to it as a coup, if, as if they were really imagining that they would take the levers of power mm-hmm. and take over control of the state apparatus. And I, I've been surprised by the reactions uh, from someone mm-hmm. on the left, like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm surprised that the one that I find most reasonable is actually has actually been Joe Biden. This has been a surprise. Yes. Well, well, I think that it's it's not just those on the left of the Democratic Party, like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who who use the word coup in that narrative, but it's actually the mainstream of American liberalism, uh, particularly the mainstream media has used that language. And you would think that given America's very long experience conducting coups in other countries, uh, <laughs> that the American media would be very familiar with the concept of uh, of a coup. Um, yes, I agree that the language is completely hyperbolic. I think that we're seeing a lot of hyperbole in American uh, civil society at the moment, just just in general. Uh, there has been a fueled um, panics created by both uh, center left and uh, right of center uh, media about a host of issues. It becomes very difficult to have a rational debate and then discuss things. And, and obviously, i think what happened on Capitol Hill was was um, you know a disgrace. It was a violent uh, riot by uh, right wing Trump supporters. It, it uh, desecrated the Capitol. It was a direct attack on American democratic norms. And you know I am a person of the radical left, but I'd rather have a stable functioning bourgeois democracy than no democracy at all. So certainly I think that it was a, a threat and, and it was disgraceful. And, and certainly these people want to inflict harm, not just on uh, left-wing Democratic Party uh, figures, but also on figures like Mitch McConnell, like Vice President Pence and others that they thought 
we're not fulfilling Trump's mandate. But yes, I think there's a big difference in between the actions of a mob and the actions of an organized coup. And uh, it does us no favors to conflate the two. Well, let's focus on, on what's happening tomorrow because on the one hand, we'll see under the slogan of America United, we'll see Joe Biden walking with the Obamas and the Clintons and the Bushes even those dreaming of a new beginning in America would see like the old neoliberal regime of 30 years of, of neoliberal policies. And we would think that that's the Biden narrative, restore the soul of the nation. And, and Trump was just an aberration. Let's go back to the world as it was before 2015 and 16. On the other hand, when you look at Biden's policies, there are some very radical elements in it. And it's, he's obviously also influenced by Bernie Sanders, and he has this proposal for, for a $15 minimum wage, something that Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. ridiculed four or five years ago. So it's difficult for me to see, is this the old neoliberal regime reestablishing right. itself, or is this actually something new? Well, let's think about it in a wider global context. Let's think about actually the career of Joe Biden to begin with. So in the 1970s, he's elected in 1972, and he advocates a broadly Keynesian program that would see an expanded uh, government. And that's what he's advocating in the 1970s. In the 1980s, the 1990s, he begins to advocate austerity uh, programs. In the 2000s, he kind of gives a mixed response to the 2008 recession. On the one hand, he advocates counter-cyclical spending. On the other hand, he also is quite wary and keeps bringing up the budget deficit and other potential problems with uh, overt government um, intervention in the economy. So there's a mixed response there. And now in 2020, he's advocating quite strong government stimulus. He's advocating the expansion of certain programs. So if you actually take aside the figure of Joe Biden, what I described is the arc of just about any centrist or center-left politician in the last 40, 50 years, from advocating um, quite uh, liberal fiscal policies or liberal in the American sense, um, I guess anything but, but liberal in other senses, uh, Keynesian uh, fiscal responses in the 1970s, to advocating belt tightening in the decades that followed, to advocating now uh, more expansionary uh, policies. So I think Biden is at the political level, something of a bellwether. Uh, he um, certainly is a, is a figure that reflects change in, in the Democratic Party, but I think he's also reflecting now changes in broadly the elite response to this current crisis. And I think whereas the elite consensus around the crisis of the 1970s was that this was a crisis born out of the excess power of working uh, people, the excess power of unions, the um, state overreach and other problems feeling both economic stagnation and also a rising inflation. I think now the consensus is rightly that the real danger isn't an overheated economy, but the real danger is um, not enough um, consumer demand because of the, the crisis um, and, and other problems that can be solved by government um, stimulus. So I think it really is a reflection of the times rather than um, any ideological uh, push, though certainly there's also the political dimension that for the first time in generations, you actually have a visible uh, pronounced political left in the United States. You have figures like Bernie Sanders, you have this mass base of young people around the Democratic Party pushing for a lot of these, these policies. So how do you as an American socialist relate to this government? I mean, he's been, he's been very friendly to Joe, to Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders even called him his friend. And they made these policy groups after the, after the mm -hmm. primaries. And it was obvious that he wanted some kind of an alliance with the youth base that you're referring to and, and, and Bernie Sanders. On the other hand, he obviously is not Bernie Sanders and he's obviously not uh, he's obviously not a, a socialist. So, so how, how do you relate to him uh, the, from the day after tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Amer American politics is quite difficult to translate to other contexts in part because it's a presidential system without really a, a party structure in a, in a traditional sense. Uh, so there's no way for Biden to enforce discipline there's also, on the other hand, no way for a block of socialist Congress people, for example, to enforce discipline on Biden. He has his own electoral mandate. 
that's distinct from the mandate of this party or the mandate of its representatives. Um, so I think that means that um, Bernie Sanders has decided that the best route for him to make change has been through this coalition with Biden, has been through trying to leverage his power and influence in American politics and use it to give himself very powerful uh, budgetary positions in Congress. And also um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and other members of the squad have um, been given preferential um, positions on certain committees and other things that actually decide a lot of the workings of um, the US Congress. Now, I think that strategy makes perfect sense for these figures in their conditions. I think for the socialist left, the extra parliamentary left like myself, you know, I don't think that, that we can pursue those strategies. Mind you, if I had a, a route to very quickly conceding on some issues of which I have no power to actually <laughs> win, win something for working class people, of course I would take it. But I think fundamentally our goal and our, our mentality has to be, we are the member of a third pole of American politics. And we do not wanna be associated with any future failings of the Biden administration. We can't be seen as needlessly obstructionist and needlessly hostile. We have to wait for Biden to actually do things worthy of hostility, in other words, in order to, to maintain popular support. But we need to maintain this independence from uh, the center of, of, of politics. Otherwise, when Biden's administration inevitably disappoints, um, or if it disappoints, um, the energy, the anti-establishment energy would just float to the populist right. So I think we're playing an important role uh, in, in opposition, creating a distinct profile for American democratic socialists that's namely rooted in our key signature demand, which is for Medicare for all, an American national health insurance uh, system. Um, and this is a demand that has the support by some Marxists, somewhere between 67 and 71% of the American people support this, but Joe Biden has not endorsed it. Trump and the Republican party is, is adamantly against it too. So it's a perfect issue where we seem to have popular support and um, you know we could stake our ground around issues like this, around the Green New Deal and other, other things and continue to develop a distinct roster of politicians um, that are pushing for these things. In your book, there are several great questions. And one of them is, in other words, can we make socialism 21st century Americanism without losing our soul in the process or dressing up like Paul Revere? And, and mm -hmm. uh, this, of course, is, is a great question. And I was wondering, if you look at the last two cycles, Bernie running against Hillary, forming this great movement, and now you have a broader support, broader base for the, and I think you've even passed 100,000 members of Socialists in America, the DSA. Mm -hmm. and, and do you see this as a step in the right direction? Do you have the feeling that with the Biden presidency, mm -hmm. the prominent positions after all for, for Bernie Sanders and, and his commitments to, to some social reforms, do you see this as you are progressing? Well, unlike in a novel, in real life, it's hard to know whether you're at the beginning, middle, or end of a story. Um, and I think that when it comes to being a socialist in the United States, uh, one tends towards um, pessimism. Um, <laughs> so you could say that there's been a cycle of protest that has opened up uh, across the Anglo-American world, uh, the US and the UK as well, in the past 10 years, um, beginning with the Occupy movement and the anti-austerity, anti-cuts movement in the UK, at the beginning of the, the 2010s, uh, then uh, leading and culminating in the uh, two um, runs of um, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders respectively. It seems to me that without a galvanizing figure and a, without a uh, electoral, large-scale national electoral campaigns to rally around, the left will only get weaker in the coming uh, years. Obviously, I'm doing everything I can to prevent that um, analysis, my rather pessimistic analysis from coming to pass. But I think it becomes very easy to get locked into a sectarian mindset that says, we had 5,000 members five years ago, and now we have 100,000. So by that measure, five years <laughs> from now, we'll have, you know, five million um, members. I don't think it actually politics um, or life unfortunately works um, that way. Uh, so we need to figure out 
what's our opening? How do we how do we create the conditions for a new wave of, of, of struggle, a new cycle of struggle? I think a lot of it will have to do with electoral campaigns in part because in the United States, as in uh, Europe and, and elsewhere, the battle of the left is not really at the battle of how do we take the existing working class and the existing working class institutions and rally it towards our political ends, but rather it's a battle for class reformation. So in other words, um, the very basis of working class life and politics has been shattered by the last 30, 40 years. We need to figure out how to use our electoral campaigns to rebuild our unions, to rebuild uh, civil society, to rebuild all these other things that will actually, in fact, make the next wave, the next generation of working class politics possible. Looking at the election results, it's been surprising to me, though not as surprising as maybe it should be, that you've seen the energy in the Democratic Party has been on the left and the inspiration has been on the left, the new, the new ideas. But on the other hand, you see that the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming an upper class party, a party of the well-educated mm -hmm. elites, and that Trump has, has even gained votes among the working class uh, in, in America. And I think actually this time it's not as white as it was mm -hmm. the, the last time. So it seems that during this, this increasing inequality that characterized America over the last 20 years, that he has mm -hmm. actually gained support in the working class. Is there anything that you could learn from Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. Is there anything about the way he talks or the way he speaks? Or yeah, way... so, so I, I think that um, for one thing, when we, his gains among the working class, we should say were, were relative, um, um, at least especially among black and Latino working class uh, people, there were relative gains there. Um, I think, what we can say is we can learn something on the radical left from the rhetoric of Joe Biden, if anything, and that um, Biden actually speaks in a rhetoric that is broadly progressive, but not alienating. He speaks, uh, I think, in a way that uh, makes his message more attractive to, uh, to ordinary um, uh, people without speaking in the kind of uh, xenophobic, or, or backwards terms of Trump. And I think the American people uh, writ large are broadly progressive. So progressive on a host of economic egalitarian issues, but also progressive on issues like immigration and progressives on issues of, of race. They don't like the radical rhetoric, the rhetoric of um, open borders, the rhetoric of defund the police. And mind you, you know, as a socialist, of, of course, in principle, I'm, I'm in favor of of, I believe in the free movement of, uh, of people, but I'm just saying that if you look at the polling in general, it's not like we have to pander to a center right nationalist parochial group of people. We have to pander at least in the US to a group of people who say, yes, we want uh, more immigrants are fine, but there should be some limits. Or, um, you know, we need to retrain bad cops and we need to keep an eye out and really hold our police departments accountable, but we also still need uh, lots of policing to address uh, crime. That's, that's, that's a plank of addressing crime um, and whatever else. So uh, we believe in LGBT equality, but um, you know, quote unquote, uh, leave us alone, right? You do your thing, we'll do our thing in a kind of libertarian sense, which is tremendous progress over social norms and views, even in the 1990s on immigration and a host of issues, the American people are more progressive now than they were in the 1990s. Now, I think what Trump has benefited from, first and foremost, is the extreme polarization of US politics. So you could literally run me as the Democratic Party candidate for, for president with all my views on the record, and I would get 45, 46% of the vote. Um, that's the bare minimum for, for what someone would get in the United States running as a member of two major parties. Then when you factor in the advantage of incumbency, the fact that incumbents tend to win re-election in the United States, you would then look at Trump's performance and say, well, it wasn't really that impressive in many, in many ways. What is telling though is the Democratic Party coalition, which is increasingly rooted in, as you say, wealthier suburbs. So this presents major problems for the Democrats. One of them is practical from the standpoint of the US political system, which has a geographic bias. 
it is very difficult, not just because of the electoral college, because of the way our seats are, are divided up, to win super majorities uh, necessary to govern. And it does require a super majority to govern in the United States if you're heavily concentrated in urban areas and suburban areas. So even if the Democrats have a pathway to continually win the presidential election through the Electoral College, given the current configuration of the country, they don't have the pathway to win 60 Senate seats and to win a commanding majority in the House of Representatives. This despite winning the popular vote by large measures. Uh, so in other words, the US political system is so uh, dysfunctional, um, you can't really skate uh, by. And we're seeing the Democrats lean into the continued dealignment of its working class base. So areas of the parties used to command from the 1930s to the 1980s, they no longer command. And instead of trying to address this problem, the US Democrats, uh, the mainstream ones at least, just like uh, European Social Democrats have said, we're going to look for votes in other places. We're going to look for votes among the wealthiest salaried professionals. We're going to look for votes among parts of the elite. We're going to look for uh, votes in quote unquote, uh, cosmopolitan young you know, uh, people in, in cities, um, immigrants and, and, and whatnot. And the irony is now we're seeing that because they have not formulated the type of a message that can appeal to white working class people, black working class people and, and Latino working class people uh, are not so different. And, and in fact, the lack of the economic egalitarian message is now hurting uh, them and these other groups uh, too. Trump, of course, is associated with this quite vehement uh, racialized rhetoric. So it's no surprise that he can't win over that many black uh, workers or that many Latino workers. But disproportionately, these people are just going to stay at home in the future. Or perhaps we might have a Republican, a right populist come along who will actually govern competently, uh, who will actually do some uh, economic stimulus and create some job programs and use less racialized uh, rhetoric. And then what you will we have? We have an absolute disaster for both the liberals and the left in the United States. And I think that's a real danger that's becoming apparent. So, so what specific policies would you imagine that, that Biden could suggest that would win the working class voters that Trump won the last time over? It seems that there, you actually could formulate some policies that would encompass the entire working class and that would also, to a certain extent, mm -hmm. satisfy the standards of justice for the well-educated elites. Well, I think that often on the left, both in the US and, and the European left, we focus a lot on this constructing policies, right? Whereas a lot of politics isn't just about constructing the right policies or platform, because in fact, Biden's platform on a host of issues was actually quite progressive on paper, but it's about making issues salient. So in other words, what do we have to do in American politics to make the most important issues, not this cultural issues or social issues, but make it about jobs, make it about wages, make it about healthcare, make it about all these other issues that we can outperform the right on. And, and I think that that happens in part at the level of, of rhetoric. So Biden, in other words, had all these very, um, many of these, obviously not on healthcare or the Green New Deal, but many popular parts of his platform in there, he just didn't foreground it. He foregrounded himself as the respectable alternative to Donald Trump. He sometimes dabbled in more populist rhetoric. That definitely helped him in Pennsylvania, where he's from. It, it helped him in some parts of the upper Midwest, where even white working class voters uh, seem to uh, swing in the upper Midwest from Trump back to uh, Biden. Um, but the key is to not just push an economic egalitarian program, uh, which is important, but also to make those economic issues more salient. And if the Democrats just want to talk about social issues, if they just want to talk about how racist or disgusting people uh, Trump is, then you know I, I don't see how they can compel people to vote. Um, there, there's um, only so many people who will be compelled to vote in the negative to shield themselves from, uh, from nightmares. Um, one issue that is not prevalent in your wonderful book, The Socialist Manifesto, that I would recommend to everyone following here, 
is climate change. And, and it appears that sometimes that climate change can be divisive on the left, that you, that you say, well, well, the uh, working class are not uh, too preoccupied with climate. They want to protect their jobs in the oil industry, and they don't want to change their ways of living. Whereas the, the privileged uh, on the left, they're very into climate change. I wonder how you see this dilemma with climate change and reaching out to working class voters. Well, I think we need an ecological politics rooted in the working class. Otherwise, we won't have a successful ecological politics. Um, so I think that climate change is the most existential issue uh, facing human civilization. Uh, I think that, in fact, it's an existential crisis for the left in particular, because if you look back at the history of the, the left, uh, the history from the time that the modern workers movement was founded in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, um, in, that, in that era to today, you would actually see that the history of organized socialist politics, the history of working class politics has been a history of success. Um, we went from conditions of extreme precarity uh, where people were being hoarded from the countryside into packed factories working 12, 13 hour shifts, living in, in slums, often without any democratic rights at all, um, without ever having seen a doctor in their lives, dying in their 40s or early 50s. You know, this was the norm for being uh, working class. And even in a country like the United States, we've developed uh, and we fought for expansions of, of suffrage. We fought for uh, a eight hour day. We fought for all these other uh, progressive taxation, all these other things that the state's doing, which would have been unimaginable in the 19th century and all of which came from uh, pressure from working class politics. And in a way, I have supreme confidence that given enough time, uh, we will manage to uh, bring about a more egalitarian uh, society. Uh, we will manage to create um, out of all this abundance that we have the end to human uh, misery. But that all is predicated on not having both the material dimensions of a kind of regression uh, to a worse form of civilization, uh, a barbarism, uh, because of climate change, and also because the dynamics of climate change uh, in its early stages, which will mean mass exoduses of refugees from coastal areas like Bangladesh, like inland, uh, from sub-Saharan Africa um, upward, and so on, will create a tremendous backlash from the right. You know, if there was such a crisis and such debates and such uh, right-wing fear-mongering, over the amount of refugees we saw during the Syrian civil war, you can imagine what will, what will be in the years to come. So obviously I think it's very important, but the key is to not counterpose any of those uh, demands with day-to-day -day lives of working people. So I think we need a left that's, that's still pro-growth. Um, I think we need a left that transitions away from fossil fuels as we can, but also is realistic that of course, we'll continue to need to, need to extract some fossil fuels in the uh, foreseeable um, you know, future, like plastics. And there's all sorts of materials that, that we, we, um, we rely on. Um, nuclear power, uh, I, I think is, is a necessity um, for us to maintain existing stocks of, of nuclear power plants. Um, and in this, in this moment, while we obviously await a expansion of renewable energy and also a renewable energy technology to develop to the point that uh, something like solar or wind can form a stable baseload, uh, which right now it cannot. So um, I think we need, in other words, a left that, that doesn't counterpose jobs uh, to these things and doesn't ask individual people to for austerity. Because it's not just in the global north. Yes, perhaps those of us living middle-class lifestyles in the global north don't need to consume um, more. Uh, we need to consume better, right? Like a better quality of things. Uh, but there's a lot of people around the world who are, who are suffering and do need more. You know, I spend... Uh, a few summers ago in, in Delhi all summer long. And the people of Delhi, uh, India need air conditioning. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a necessity. It's a basic of life in that climate in the, in the summer where laborers die of heat stroke every day. And I think it's, it's, um, it is the condition of much of the world that is still under development and poverty. And, and, and this will be solved by economic growth and full employment uh, policies that utilizes 
all the resources of the, the planet uh, in a sustainable way to create more uh, plenty. And I think this is uh, an argument, a point, a way of framing things that would not have been controversial for uh, much of the first uh, 160 years of the, uh, the modern <laughs> left. And, and it shouldn't be in the, in the future. And that's the only way we could solve uh, climate change and push for the kind of state investment and state action it will take to solve uh, uh, climate change. Um, it will require building and mobilizing uh, working class people. And also pointing out how the objectives of individual capitalists are always short termist in the sense that they don't act collectively, they act to um, just secure their bottom line and to maintain their market uh, competitiveness. Uh, so obviously this requires working class wielding of the state. You know, obviously I think in the long run it requires socialism, but <laughs> we won't win socialism in the next 10, 15 years and we'll need to uh, address climate change before we enter into a point of no return with, with feedback uh, loops, which I think we will enter you know, very soon unless we use the carrot and sticks uh, available to us through our existing uh, governments. Well, thank you. I want to turn the attention to a few themes of your, of your book. First, when you started speaking about socialism in America here in the 21st century, I think people were very enthusiastic. In Denmark, it was like the taboo was down. The socialists were no longer the losers of the, of the Cold War. It was like, let's reopen the, the imagination. Let's think about politics again. And it's kind of a paradox that you have inspired the left wing here in Denmark with talking about socialism in America. But then when we hear, when, when you see the policies suggested by Bernie, they, they resemble very much the social democratic policies of Denmark. <laughs> and um, he mentions Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, uh, as kind of a role model for, for socialism and, and the New Deal reforms. And very often I, I come to wonder what is actually the difference between what you call socialism and then social democracy. I know it's a big question and you have lengthy mm -hmm. re reflections on it in, in your book, but I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear your short answer. Yeah, uh, well, I think that um, the goal, well, first of all, part of the goal of my book was to integrate the social democratic tradition back within this wider socialist tradition. So I think it was absurd that socialists in the United States were more interested in what happened in Russia in 1917 <laughs> than what happened in Sweden in 1971, because I think they both fell short of, of their goals. Um, but I think the case of Nordic social democracy was more instructive uh, to our, our, our moment for, for obvious um, reasons. I think that the pursuit of social democracy, and by that, I mean the pursuit of a social democracy that's rooted in working class power, not just rooted in corporatist uh, compromise, but pushed by, um, by a party with a transformative agenda, with the backing of uh, working class people in an organized fashion through trade unions and other, other organs. This is a social democracy whose logic could possibly lead to democratic um, socialism. So in other words, um, I think, if you look at the experience of, let's say, Sweden from 1968 to 1977, 1978, you would say that the experience of social democracy, far from making people uh, pliant and satisfied with capitalism, actually opened up for capitalists a Pandora's uh, box, where in order to resolve the crises that social democracy unleashed in the 1970s, the left wing of social democracy began pushing for wage earner funds, began pushing for new forms of industrial democracy. Um, militancy exploded in, in social democracies. And it seems to me that if there was ever a viable route to socialism in a parliamentary, you know, democratic context, um, that was it. And it seems to me that today, in the pursuit of a more robust, responsive state in the pursuit of working class parties and institutions, our short term agenda will obviously be the social democratic um, reforms. But this doesn't uh, foreclose the possibility of uh, socialism. In fact, I think it's a prerequisite for thinking beyond social democracy itself. Uh, what do you think was the effect of Bernie Sanders calling himself a socialist? Because if you look at at the, at the surveys, there's a huge support for many of his proposals. 
that like many Republican voters would support some of his proposals that you mm -hmm. could label radical. Uh, and, and I, of course, understand that calling himself a socialist was inspiring and mobilizing and it inspired us here as well. But on the other hand, I thought maybe he, he would have won the primaries if he didn't mm -hmm. call himself a socialist because some of the elite Democrats were afraid that the others would be afraid of, of a self-proclaimed socialist. What did the label do to Bernie? Well, I think Bernie Sanders didn't have much of a choice in that he was a socialist. He first became <laughs> politicized in the Young People's Socialist League, which was our youth section of the old Socialist Party of America, of Eugene Debs and Norm Thomas and these other, other figures. Uh, he had throughout his political career from his early races at Vermont onward, uh, called himself a socialist. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that he didn't have a choice but to say who he was. I also think in the US context, they would call you a socialist anyway. Um, <laughs> the red baiting would happen anyway. And I think at this point, the socialist label is neither a benefit nor a, a harm. I think it fundamentally uh, means very little to people. Most people associated with, with Nordic um, uh, welfare states. Um, to the extent they have association. Um, I think that we need to actually win something for our politics to have any sort of deeper resonance. You know, um, for now, just a, a floating, you know, signifier um, almost. Um, so fundamentally, I think that Bernie Sanders calling himself a socialist was less important than the egalitarian program uh, behind him, obviously. I'm among the very small group of Americans that became politicized with the language and history of socialism. I became politicized in the Young Democratic Socialist of America when I was just a teenager. Uh, the Young Democratic uh, uh, Socialist of America is obviously um, tied to DSA. DSA uh, was for a very long time the uh, only American affiliate of the Socialist International at the time when you know uh, Ola Palma and others were were major uh, figures, so we were probably more schooled in the traditions of European social democracy, particularly its left wing, um, <laughs> in the the 1970s, than other American uh, socialists. So I have this unusual uh, background. It might be that in the future, this economic egalitarian rhetoric finds firmest ground on U.S. soil with a left populist rhetoric, perhaps populism as a modern political movement actually emerged in the United States amongst our poor farmers and workers in the late 19th century. Uh, we invented the populist uh, movement. It might be that, that in the future we'll, we'll reinvent it from the left. I can't say that for, uh, for certain, but I think what's less important is the, the rhetoric. What's more important is the program and um, actually uh, I, I guess rhetoric too, because actually conveying that program in such a way that doesn't alienate people. When I, I was in I was in New Hampshire with my son, who's a great great Bernie Sanders fan, to see him win there. About it's about a year ago now, and at that time, I, I'm not an American, so I don't understand politics the way you do. But I thought he was winning, Bernie. I had the sensation that he was building this very strong movement that and and that the establishment, they couldn't coalesce against him. So, so I thought he was, it seemed to me that he was winning. There was so much self-confidence among his supporters and his, his intensity seemed to meet the moment. What is your explanation today why Bernie Sanders didn't win? Well, I think fundamentally, it's worth remembering that Bernie Sanders was running in a crowded field of almost a dozen Democratic Party contenders. And he finished a uh, you know second in this field. So I think it's worth saying what differentiated Bernie from the rest of the Democratic uh, field. That's that's one thing. Uh, well, why didn't Bernie win? Well, I think that he had an uphill battle to begin with. Uh, fundamentally, most Democrats, after the experience of Donald Trump, didn't want radical change or rupture or a political revolution. They wanted to return to normalcy. Biden benefited from perceptions of electability. Uh, people thought that he was the best bet to defeat Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders, I believe, should have ran on the idea that only he could defeat Donald Trump. Um, obviously, even though we know that's not the case, he should have ran on the case that Biden is Hillary Clinton 2.0. We've already tried this. We already tried the safe bet. Only my brand of, of left kind of firebrand politics can defeat Donald uh, Trump. I think he should have ran on that. He should have called into more doubt 
the ability of Biden uh, to protect Medicare and Social Security. Uh, I think he ran a campaign that included some of those elements, but it was a little bit too confused. And it also became, um, I think, too much like a recipe list, like a wish list. I think you especially had this with Corbyn. Corbyn was going to give you everything. And then at some point, if you say you're going to give people everything, they think you're going to give them nothing. And there was a line, I think it was from Tony Blair, actually. And and maybe this we can learn from New Labour. If it was indeed Blair who said this, maybe it was Connect or someone else, that your party platform should be able to fit on the back of your membership card, your party card. And um, I think, in other words, we need message discipline on the left. We need our candidates to be as repetitive as Bernie. But Bernie was told that he had to address every single issue uh, under the sun. We should have just said, Bernie, just say Medicare for all, just say jobs, just say trade. And I think that the campaign became too expansive about too many things and promised too many uh, things. Though I honestly do believe we could have delivered on those, uh, many of those uh, promises. But um, I think that was a real danger more than um, more than anything else. But Biden was a very strong candidate uh, in the end. He was a candidate that I think rhetorically has a lot in common with Bernie Sanders at the level of being able to relate to and connect to ordinary voters in a way that wasn't off-putting, in a way that didn't use complex vocabulary. You had Democratic Party candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro literally using the academic rhetoric of intersectionality <laughs> in their campaign. Um, you know, rhetoric that, that might give them a, a splash in the media and among a very small, narrow layer of, of highly educated professionals, but among most Democratic Party voters, really just as meaningless. And the last thing I would say is that it's worth remembering that we exist as political people in a universe that is highly polarized. And obviously American politics is becoming very polarized too. But within the Democratic Party, most Democrats liked all their choices. Hmm. So what's unusual to think of is that there's a huge portion of the Democratic Party that was number one, Joe Biden, number two, Bernie Sanders or vice versa. So Bernie had to be careful at all times to not wage too aggressive of a campaign against um, Joe Biden because within the Democratic Party, unlike within the Republican Party, I think some of the, the rhetoric of hostility that Trump displayed to his Republican opponents would not have flied within the Democratic Party. My own parents, for instance, voted for Bernie Sanders, but really liked Joe Biden. You know, the, that, that is the norm within the Democratic Party. You will never find someone on Twitter uh, who cares about <laughs> politics, who is a Biden, um, a Bernie guy, but it's very common out there, uh, especially uh, among you know people of color and other Democratic Party loyalists. They like their party. I have one last question for you, uh, because your, your book came out, I think came out in 2019. I think you must have worked on it for a long time, because uh, it's very extensive. But one of the heroes of the book is, is Jeremy Corbyn. And after your book came out and it was finished, he lost an election that probably he could have won, but he never delivered a solution to the problem of Brexit. You know, the, this issue that was the burning issue for his country, he, he never gave an answer to what to do about Brexit. And for me, that was like a classical left-wing fallacy that you had your own problems that you wanted to talk about and you did not want to talk about the other problem. And then there was this issue that a candidate running against racism as an anti-racist candidate, he did not want to take responsibility for the anti-Semitism in his own party. How do you see the legacy of Corbyn? Well, two things. Well, I think for one thing, there of course is lots of anti-Semitism in British society. including the Labour Party, because there's just lots of anti-Semitism in British society. I don't think there was any structural or institutional or systemic uh, anti-Semitism within the UK Labour Party. I think, if anything, it was closer to a moral panic. And we've seen lots of these moral panics crop up around issues of oppression. And because the oppression actually exists in the world, it becomes very difficult to delineate between what's a media event and what's a, what's a panic. Um, but I think in this case, um, uh, it, it, it certainly is a scourge that should be uh, confronted. Um, he certainly had some rhetorical things that he should have 
change. So for example, if you're addressing the issue of anti-Semitism, there's no need to say you condemn all forms of racism and anti-Semitism too. You could just say you condemn anti-Semitism in that context. So there's little things like that um, where I think he felt the need to hedge and, and say other things. Um, I think there's a tradition and in, in particular the UK of anti-Semitism, which is quite more uh, virulent than in uh, some other parts of the Anglophone world. I think the irony is that it's been deepest and most entrenched in the British elite, unlike in um, a Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe, I would say anti-Semitism in the UK uh, has a more uh, elite than uh, plebeian um, uh, roots, but that's that's another another story. On the issue of Brexit, I really do think that in part tanked his campaign because he embraced uh, this, in the end, essentially a people's vote position after resisting it for so long. Now, putting aside what you think about Brexit, uh, my own view is somewhat nuanced, which is that uh, I think the process of European integration uh, was a process that hurt the prospects for social democracy in a place like the United Kingdom. There's a reason why the Benites and the labor left uh, resisted uh, European integration, but the Brexit campaign was a campaign fueled and led by the right wing of British uh, society. I think it would be very hard to support a campaign like that, even if you like some of the policy outcomes. I also think that the UK might've been a little bit too far down the road of European integration in a highly financialized economy for it to make much economic sense either. But that's that's kind of another, another story. But his position during the referendum, I think was correct, which is that he hedged and he was fairly neutral. And the reason to be neutral, while at least saying you support a remain vote, but, but not really campaigning on it that hard, was because in the heartland of labor voters, these were labor, loyal labor voters who were also uh, leave uh, voters, or many of them were leave voters. Uh, so why alienate those voters? And then at that point, once Brexit is done, uh, once the vote is concluded, you have a democratic mandate to leave the European Union. The response of Corbyn in 2017 in that environment was essentially that everyone took for granted that the Brexit mandate would be followed through upon. But in part because of the actions of Labour Party activists, among other parts of UK uh, civil society, the fact that there would be a Brexit was cast into doubt in the lead up to 2019. So obviously I think he should have done what he could to suppress those currents in the lead up to the UK election. I think also one lesson that we can learn from Corbyn that I think all center-left parties across Europe and the world need to understand is that it is better to lose one election and maintain your historic base than to try to gamble to win over new voters and lose your base. So for example, the strategy pushed by some parts of the Labour Party that Corbyn seemed to go along with in the last few months of the election said, let's pivot to the south of England, let's pivot to these new voters, these new constituencies, we hope we'll, we'll, we'll keep our voters. We hope that they'll, they'll stick with us, but we're gonna pivot our rhetoric to winning over these, these new areas in the, the South of England. I think a more conservative campaign aimed at preserving uh, Labour Party strength and, and aimed towards its historic voters in Wales and the North of England and the Midlands uh, and elsewhere would have been far more effective. But in either case, I think this is no big indictment on the prospects for a renewed social democracy in the Labour Party. Uh, practically, they've been defeated, but at no point was Corbyn's program uh, defeated. Uh, we perhaps in Corbyn did not have the best ambassador um, in, in the sense that I, I think Corbyn was a incredibly strong moral figure of, of authority, but not the best um, politician in the sense of being able to discipline his own party. Uh, I think the labor left lost a massive uh, opportunity to restructure the party at the CLP, the constituency labor party uh, level. Uh, they could have really recreated the labor party into a vehicle of working class politics. But the big, big irony that I see in this whole experience is that if you look at what the historic project of third wave social democracy was, of new labor, this was to reorient labor from its traditional base in the manual working class to a younger, more cosmopolitan, more dynamic base that included lots of salaried professionals. And in the end, it took a Benite committed to the restoration of, of a socialist labor party 
to in the effect, I think by accident, if you look at where Labour won, where they lost, uh, to essentially make the, the map uh, look kind of like the map that Blair wanted. I think the difference is Blair also and, and Kinnock assumed that they would win Scotland. And the fact that Scottish nationalism is still growing will make it very difficult for Labour to win and, and govern in the future. So I think that there's a lot of lessons. I, I'm not sure again that it's a it's a big indictment like a lot of people ask me i know this wasn't your question they asked me well isn't corbyn's loss an indictment on democratic socialism um well socialism have seen plenty of defeats over the past um you know 120 years plenty of crimes committed in its names and whatnot like, i don't think jeremy corbyn is going to rank very high uh you know among them <laughs> well thank you so very much for taking your time thank you it's been very inspirational thank you thanks take care Det var min samtale med Baskar Sunkara, og hvis der er mange lyttere derude, der tænker, Gud, hvor kunne vi godt tænke os at vide noget mere om alt det, I snakker om, så er gode råd ikke dyre. De er faktisk gratis, fordi man kan bare gå ind på www.information.dk-prøvnu. Det var information.dk-prøvnu. Derinde kan man få en måned gratis. Ja, det er rigtigt. Fuldstændig aldeles gratis uden nogen forpligtelser. Og jeg lover, der er de store linjer, de store perspektiver, dokumentation og modsigelserne til alt det, Baskar og jeg vi lige har talt om. Jeg vil dog gerne advare, der er rigtig mange af dem, der prøver information, der tror, det er sådan noget, man lige prøver, som man prøver en jakke, og så tager man noget andet på bagefter, og så går man med den jakke resten af livet. Det er sket for mange mennesker, og der er mange mennesker, hvis venner er blevet trætte af at høre på alt det, de har lært fra information. Der er så også nogen, der siger, at det er den bedste ven, og den ven, de aldrig nogensinde vil slippe igen. Næste uge, der taler jeg med den serbisk-amerikanske økonom Branko Milanovic, som i sin nyeste bog, Capitalism Alone, fortæller, at kapitalismen er det første system, der har opnået dominans i hele verden. Så der er ingen børn i verden længere, der vokser op i samfund, der ikke er kapitalistiske. Det har Branko til gengæld selv prøvet, for han er født og opvokset i Titus kommunistiske Jugoslavien. Han vil i den næste samtale fortælle om, hvordan det var at vokse op uden for kapitalismen, og hvordan det nu er at være en af verdens førende økonomer inden for kapitalismen. Det bliver rigtig sjovt, og der kommer rigtig mange Karl Marx-citater. <tryk>